0: I'm Peter McCulley. Ken McGugan, a graduate of UBC and an award-winning and best-selling Canadian author, offers new answers about what really happened to Sir John Franklin and his ill-fated search for the Northwest Passage in his book, Searching for Franklin.
1: If they are able to decipher some writing, even if that folio or notebook itself doesn't contain anything revelatory, that would at least show that conservators in Ottawa can decipher what they find, and if they can decipher it, if they then find, as we're all hoping that they will, some real business records, the log books, or detailed narratives about what's been going on, I believe that would corroborate my theory.
0: In our second segment, we'll chat with singer-songwriter Bernie Bentall about his experience as a passenger on board trips to the Arctic and the Franklin experience.
2: It's pretty powerful when I get to Beachy Island. And I have had the good fortune of going there probably six times. This is a place where it is extremely difficult to get to. I've had the good fortune to be there. And it's a very moving place. It really hits you, just the desolation and the beauty of the place. But my God, how hard it would be to survive there.
0: Searching for Franklin on this edition of Today in BC. Thanks for joining us today, Ken. Thanks for having me. So, Ken, in your opinion, what makes the Franklin Expedition one of the most enduring mysteries in Arctic Expedition?
1: The way it ended was very strange indeed. Previous expeditions had gone out, I think, for example, of one led by John Ross and James Clark Ross. They spent four winters in the Arctic and lost only three of 23 men, whereas the Franklin Expedition went out began to fall apart after just two years, and then came a series of what looked like panic-stricken decisions that followed hard on numerous deaths. Franklin himself died as early as 1847, having sailed in 1845. Then the ships were trapped in the ice. They had a hospital tent off it and so forth. Subsequent in testimony describes the final survivors trekking along the southwest coast of King William Island So it just fell apart in a very bizarre manner very early on, and people have been trying to figure out what happened
0: for decades. Who was John Franklin, Ken? Tell us the story.
1: I've been circling around the Franklin story through five books. I realized it's been 25 years since I started. I got interested in Arctic exploration in 1998, and so I went out to the house where Franklin was born. Even when I wasn't writing about Franklin himself, I wrote a book called Lady Franklin's Revenge about his amazing wife, Lady Jane Franklin. And so I did a lot of research that involved Franklin then. I went also to her house and stayed in her house. It's now a retreat overlooking Russell Square in London. Also, she got him a job at one point down in Australia as a lieutenant governor of Van Diemen's Land, now called Tasmania. So She was very good at getting him jobs. And in fact, she was the one who got him the job leading this 1845 expedition? She was very well connected and knew what strings to pull. But flashing back a bit, Franklin was one of numerous children, the son of a shopkeeper in Spilsby, Lincolnshire. He started going to sea when he was 11 or 12, which was not unusual in those days, and joined the Navy. The Navy needed a lot of people around about this time because of the Napoleonic Wars. Franklin was a young man. He had a couple of breaks. He had an uncle, Matthew Flinders, who was an extraordinary navigator. Franklin managed to get on one of Flinders' ships down in the Australia area. Managed to survive that, and then he got pointed to a ship that ended up at the Battle of Trafalgar, so he was there. And then it was a matter of having met people, certainly on the Flinders' voyage, that had some powerful connections and could hook him up with John Barrow of the Admiralty, who was basically running the Admiralty show. So it came to pass that in 1818, Franklin was appointed to lead the first overland Arctic expedition sponsored by the Royal Navy. Franklin and a few men went via Hudson's Bay Company ships, and then for a couple of years, with the indigenous peoples slogged north, to the Arctic coast, and onward from there.
0: I just finished reading your book, Searching for Franklin, and the most surprising thing for me was that I hadn't realized that Sir John Franklin had been an overland explorer as well as a sailor searching for the Northwest Passage, and he had traveled extensively overland.
1: Yes, indeed. He spent as many years traveling overland in the Canadian subarctic, more doing that than he did captaining various voyages. That's one extraordinary thing. A lot of people don't know that. But as you saw there in the book, Franklin was not well-prepared. He and his men, they're living in England all their lives, and suddenly they're transported, beating their way north through country they've never even conceived. So they weren't well-prepared, and worse in a way. Franklin just couldn't listen to the indigenous experts like the Denny leader, Cacho, and Pierre Saint-Germain, a fantastic voyageur, Denny and French-Canadian. They were telling him when he gets to, come to the coast, 1821, okay, it's too late in the season. Don't try to go east along the coast. All the animals have gone south. The Inuit on the coast have gone south after the animals. You go along the coast, you're going to starve to death. Franklin said, no, no, figured he knew better. And he also had this fervent belief in miracles. So he thought, I'll be just fine if I head along the coast here. But of course, he was not so that was his first disaster. He lost more than half his men, 11 out of 20, to starvation, murder, and cannibalism. Narrowly survived himself because the Dene rescued him. And then there's this fantastic irony. He gets back to England, and he's uh, acclaimed as a hero. He's the man who ate his boots because they were all reduced to eating their moccasins. Pretty extraordinary turn of events there.
0: The search for the Northwest Passage, Ken, was a For the glory of being the first one to do so, I could see that there'd be a need for mapping what we don't know. But surely these explorers didn't think they were finding a new trade route, did they?
1: Early on, we're talking late 1500s, early 1600s. Yeah, they did think they were going to find a new trade route because Portuguese and the Spaniards were controlling the southern routes. They had no idea of the vastness of the geography they were uh, contemplating. They thought we'll just sail over the top here, and we'll be able to secure the riches of Cathay. Of course, it turned out to be a great deal more difficult than that. By the time Franklin first began poking around in 1818 or so, they had a pretty good idea that this was gonna be a bit more difficult and the whole trade route idea. Might not bear fruit immediately, but what happened was, first of all, the Napoleonic Wars ended. So they had a surplus of Navy officers in particular, on half pay, not doing anything, going nuts at all, Franklin being one of them. Also, the Russians were poking around in the north. The nationalistic position was, wait a minute, we've done all this preliminary work, and now the Russians are going to find their way? So we can't let that happen. So
0: that was part of the motivation as well. What are some of the challenges you encountered while you were doing the research of the two Franklin expeditions? I guess the challenges are
1: those that face anyone who's writing history, sorting through a myriad of documents. I did spend a lot of time in the archive at the Scott Polar Research Institute early on, that's in Cambridge. Then I got down into the archives in Hobart, Tasmania. There were documents in Hobart that have never been digitized or anything. Finding those documents, sorting through them, fairly standard challenges. I also like to go where things happen. That is so much part of my process. I guess it comes out of my journalistic background, and it's so valuable. You go somewhere, and you learn so much, first of all, from local historians, but also just seeing the places. In my book, The American Explorer, Elijah Kent Kane, who was among the first to discover the graves on Beachy Island, I found the location of his uh, grandparents' house, Outside Philadelphia, where we spent a lot of time, and found a local historian who took me around and showed me all kinds of things. And she said, you're the first biographer to come out here and see this. (laughs) I could hardly understand that. That's very much part of my method to go where things happened. Hence, I went to where Franklin grew up. I went to where his wife grew up. I trekked around, went through the Northwest Passage numerous times. Those things are not that easy to engineer.
0: How many times have you been to the Arctic?
1: The first time I went up on my own, I wanted to put a plaque up in honour of John Ray. Flew up. That was 1999. I had discovered John Ray in 1998. Then it was Margaret Atwood who read my book, Fatal Passage, when she was sailing with Adventure Canada. She really liked it. Adventure Canada, the Ontario-based travel company. She and Graham... We're hosting every year a post Christmas party for waifs and strays. And I'm a long time waif and stray. So my wife and I were there, crowded, crowded rooms at her house. She emerges out of the crowd, plucks me by the sleeve, and says, Come with me. And when Margaret, and I would just come with me, you go. She hauled me through the house and into another crowded room. And she said, Kay McGoogan, this is Matthew Swan. He owns and operates Adventure Canada, and I think you two should talk. Boom, and then she was gone. She led me to Adventure Canada, and I started sailing with them virtually every year, sometimes two voyages. I also went around Scotland and Ireland with them. I don't have an accurate count. Maybe I should get that one of these days. I guess I went up there with AC, as we call it. Maybe 15 different voyages.
0: And so Adventure Canada would be offering a historical glimpse of Franklin and other Arctic researchers and explorers?
1: Yes, exactly. So I would give presentations on the ship, and we'll do so again next year. But also when you get to Beachy Island, for example, they would station me and an archaeologist, perhaps, maybe someone else, at the location. Say, here's Beachy Island. I give my historical take. An archaeologist would give their archaeological take. So it would operate like that presentations on the ship. Then you go someplace and you hear, okay, this is the place that this happened. That's the process.
0: I wanted to go back to something you were talking about, Ken, about uh, Lady Jane Franklin, Sir John Franklin's wife. She played a significant role in the search efforts when the Erebus and the terror were declared missing. Could you tell us more about her involvement and influence?
1: Oh yeah. She was an extraordinary woman in her own right. In fact, Far more extraordinary than John Franklin himself, who was a decent enough man, who did the best he could. But she was an extraordinary individual, a traveler in her own right. When Victorian women were not supposed to be traveling, supposed to be staying home, taking care of the kids, she went up the Nile River by herself. She goes traveling. Franklin gets appointed to a ship. She goes traveling around the Middle East and down in Egypt. So she's all over the place. She, first of all, got him this job as Lieutenant Governor of Van Diemen's Land, and when that fell apart, things went bad. She was a forceful personality and a large figure, and people figured out that, wait a minute, it looks like she's wearing the pants. She's running the show, not Franklin. They ended up returning to England in 1843 in disgrace, basically, you know, devastated by what had happened to her reputation. And then they heard that there was this new expedition leaving, and it was her who got him the job. He he wasn't even on the list. He was considered too old, although 59 is a lot younger now than it was then, I must insist. She had the connections and the influence to get him the job, so he was the one who sailed out. When he didn't come back, by 1847, she's getting worried along with everybody else. Basically, she drove the search for Franklin. The Royal Navy was intimately connected and sending out voyages, but she personally financed and she orchestrated subscriptions to send ships out to find out what had happened. And when they didn't determine conclusively, when John Ray in 1854 came back with news that this is not good, they ended in catastrophe, there was cannibalism, that blew the top off Victorian England— particularly Jane Franklin, but that didn't stop her. Even after that, she sent out Leopold McClintock, who eventually found this one-page Victory Point record that laid out a few salient facts. They got that back, but she was still heavily involved in sending out expeditions, but she also mythologized Franklin. He had already been acclaimed as the man who ate his boots, but now he became the discoverer of the Northwest Passage, which was not true. (laughs) Certainly, you'll get an argument on this. Anytime you raise this subject, I've been arguing about this for more than 20 years. But Franklin basically discovered nothing. And nevertheless, she managed to raise statues here, there, and everywhere, from Spilsby to Westminster Abbey to Hobart. There's a glorious statue in Hobart with a fountain. She turned Franklin into this mythological hero. That was her doing.
0: Can you share some insights into the psychological and the physical hardships that Franklin and his crew went through during the expedition? Two expeditions, and they were trapped in the ice?
1: We have a pretty good idea. I haven't lived up in the Arctic for years and years, but I I grew up in a town outside Montreal where it would be 40 degrees below zero, and I'd be delivering my newspaper route. It'd be like that on a constant basis, always in the dark, because you're so far north, dark all winter long for months at a time. If you're on the ship, you're confined in the ship. If you're on the land, you better get to one of those uh, Hudson's Bay Company posts uh, as quick as you can. That first expedition, they were in York boats, canoes, and on snowshoes. And these are not men who are trained. Today, you've got some extraordinary athletes who can go out there. Even back then, John Ray, he could go thousands of miles in a single day on snowshoes. Extraordinary figure, but he was extraordinary. Franklin and the men were not. They were not extraordinary. They were not trained. They, they had no idea what they were doing floundering around out there. By the time of the 1845 expedition, they didn't have to go floundering around because they were on that ship. But then you're confined with two ships. These are tiny ships. Compared with the voyages we undertake these days, just a a fraction of the size, tiny little wooden tubs, really, and you're confined there with all kinds of men in a bunk, that could take its toll.
0: And then spending the winter locked in the ice in a tent.
1: Yeah, they weren't the only expedition that did that. That was the interesting thing. Other expeditions did that as well and managed to survive. They kept up their morale.
0: Ken, can you share some of the more surprising or unexpected discoveries you made while you were researching the book?
1: Well, I think it was interesting. The most intriguing thing, people have been trying to figure out what went wrong for decades because it was such a bizarre end. First of all, in the 1980s, there came John Geiger and Owen Beattie, went north to Beachy Island, dug up the first three men to die there. Beatty was a forensic anthropologist and determined that the men had a high level of lead. That was the prevailing theory then that they put forward in a wonderful book called Frozen in Time. That theory prevailed for the next two decades and more. In the early 2000s, scientists began looking and making comparisons and saying, yeah, the sailors had a high lead level in their blood, but these are not unusual levels. That didn't ring true in terms of what then ensued. So there was another theory put forward: botulism. Maybe botulism did it. But by 2014, scientists and uh, statisticians had published works, essays, long, long pieces saying these theories are not holding up. But they didn't put any new theory in place. I'd been immersed at this point, say 2017, for two decades in Arctic history, and I'd written five books. So I. Explored a lot of it. So I began looking at history. I remember the Jens Monk expedition of 1619. He sailed into Churchill with 64 men. Over the course of the winter, he lost 61 of them. So he and two men were the, the only ones that escaped. They were wiped out. And I came across an article published in 1973 in the Beaver magazine, now Canada's History, by a guy named Delbert Young, a writer. Monk left a long journal. Look at all these details. He said, it looks like this was trichinosis from eating infected bear meat that you did not cook properly. That made a lot of sense to me, and I began casting about further. And I remembered the Andre expedition. Three Swedes who uh, got into a balloon in 1897. They were going to go up over the North Pole. And the balloon crashed. Hey, no worries, they all survived. But then polar bears came around, so they shot the polar bears. They were still good. But then they ate the meat, and he began to get sick, and then they died. Some years later, a couple of decades later, a doctor went up there, examined the polar bears are still extant, and said, yeah, you know what? This bear had trichinosis, and related to the men, and here's the record of what happened to them. They, too, died of trichinosis by eating infected bear meat. So that rang true for me, and I began to look at the uh, symptoms and and how the Franklin Expedition unfolded and to put it all together. Some fellow experts, quote-unquote, they said, yeah, that's a good theory, but there's no bears off the northwest coast of King William Island where they got trapped in the ice. And so I thought about that for a while, and I realized, yeah, that's true, but I've been on Beachy Island which is where Franklin sailed from. I've been driven off Beachy Island more than once by polar bears. They come thundering over this isthmus that connects the so-called island, to Devon Island, where they're all over the place. There's been some discussion. There was a kind of a campsite far removed from the main area where they had their main tent. People weren't quite sure what it was doing out there. and I thought, yeah, I think I know what they were doing. They had a lookout post there because the bears were coming along the isthmus, just as I saw them do, and then attacking the tents. So how does that make you feel? So the difference then and now is, nowadays we see a bear coming, we get off the island. We pile into the zodiacs and get out of there. They weren't going to do that. They would stand there and shoot the bear. And then they would eat the bear. And then they had these barrel of food they had brought from England. They ate that down naturally and then they would pile the fresh meat into these barrels. When they left Beachy Island and sailed south to get trapped in the ice, they were carrying this infected polar bear meat that laid waste to so many of them so quickly, and the, the whole ensuing disaster. But this one fell apart because, I think, of the infected polar bear meat that they ate without cooking it.
0: When they found the Erebus and the Terror, the Franklin ships, I understand they... Found a logbook that might corroborate your theory?
1: What they found was what they call a folio that had some writing in it, either writing or pictures. If they are able to decipher some writing, even if that folio or notebook itself doesn't contain anything revelatory, that would at least show that conservators in Ottawa can decipher what they find. And if they can decipher it, if they then find, as we're all hoping that they will, some real business records, the log books, or detailed narratives about what's been going on. I believe that would corroborate my theory, but there's also other ways it could be corroborated. I checked my thinking with one of Canada's leading epidemiologists, David Waltner-Taves, and he looked at it and he said, yeah, it does sound like trichinosis. Here's the thing. He also told me, just in passing, not so long ago, in Greenland, there was a young girl who had been frozen in the permafrost for a couple of centuries. They dug her out and did some tests and determined that she had died of trichinosis. Take those barrels that I'm saying they used to transport meat. Maybe there's still some traces of me in those barrels that could be tested that would then corroborate my theory. There are searchers who are going out overland every year. And that was what my late friend Louis Kamokak was doing as well. They were bent on finding the vault that contained Franklin. They believe he's buried on land based on stories. That's another way evidence could be found.
0: The Franklin expedition and its disappearance, what impact did that have on the broader exploration of the Arctic at the time?
1: First of all, it actually opened up the Arctic in a funny way because all these search expeditions went out. Dozens of them went out in search to find out what had happened. Sponsored by the Royal Navy for a time, and then driven by Lady Franklin herself. When they go out, there's an archipelago up there, and it's like a warren. Gradually, they elaborated the map of the Canadian archipelago up there. So there's a few different ways you can theoretically get through. But this is also in the Little Ice Age. It was very difficult, but they did determine where the islands were and so forth. It led to the opening up of the map of the Canadian Arctic. And they realized this is a much, much taller order than we ever realized.
0: Ken, are there lessons that modern society can learn from the Franklin Expedition and the explorers who ventured into the Arctic?
1: I would say there's a lot of lessons we can learn. This is my sixth book about Arctic exploration. I think, in terms of a narrative, we like to read about people who are obsessed, they've got a quest that they wish to complete. They're going to overcome obstacles no matter what they may be. So that makes for a heroic story, if you will, confronting these obstacles. I find the explorers inspirational in that respect, but then there's also the heuristic side. The aspect of Franklin, for example, who was a quintessential imperialist. He was spearheading, in a way, the British colonial enterprise, to uh, search out what lands there were and so forth. But there's also the hubris, and that in his first expedition, the refusal to listen, the inability to listen to people who knew so much more than he did about these areas and traveling in them and what you could risk and what you could not risk. So there's a a great lesson there to be mindful of in terms of uh, our own hubris today. And maybe not a bad idea to listen to uh, local people, whoever they may be, when they're trying to tell you something. It might be wise to listen.
0: Ken, you mentioned you're going to be heading back to the Arctic on an adventure cruise next year?
1: Yes, indeed. That voyage will take place end of September into the Northwest Passage from Greenland on through to uh, Kugluktuk, or the mouth of the Coppermine River. Lots of history to see along this voyage
0: that's Ken McGugan, author of Searching for Franklin. Singer-songwriter Barney Bentall has been on a number of adventure cruises to the Arctic and in fact was on board a ship that sailed over top of the Erebus and the Terror. Barney Franklin Bentall, when Today in BC continues. Searching for a new home? Make todayshomebc.com your online home base. With easy-to-search listings and connections to local realtors, everything you need is under one roof. Powered by Black Press Media, you can search hundreds of local listings, all in one place. Access the top real estate professionals to help you find the perfect home today at todayshomebc.com. I'm Peter McCulley. Today in BC is a Black Press Media podcast. Welcome, Bernie Bentall. Hi, how are you doing, Peter? Bernie, we just chatted with Ken McGugan about his new book, Searching for Franklin, and knowing that you've been on a number of Arctic adventure cruises, I thought you could bring the conversation about the Arctic and Sir John Franklin full circle for us.
2: For the last 12, 14 years, I've gone as a staff member with Adventure Canada. They were the pioneers, I think, of that type of travel in the north and consequently are very well respected in the north. And they also have a very strong indigenous component. They have the only and the first expedition leader who is from Labrador, Jason Edmonds. The educational component on these trips, in my opinion, second to none. I play music a couple of nights and whatever's needed there. I also do audio visual. I help out with that. And then I drive Zodiac. And then I'm also Bear Guard when people go on land. So... I feel very fortunate to be part of these trips. I guess I've cultivated the ability to take on multiple tasks because that's what gets you the gig. I I love doing it. And sometimes when I'm mixing sound or helping out with some of the presentations here, listening to the marine biologist or the geologist or Margaret Atwood doing a presentation or Ken, the historical stuff, my God, people soak that up. I just find that I'm always learning when I'm on the trips, as do the passengers. There's typically, you know, 160 or 170 passengers and a lot of staff and, of course, the ship's crew, which is an amazing array of people that look after the hotel and the captain and the crew and then the sailors. It becomes a wonderful floating community. The whole Franklin thing, it's fascinating to me how it captivates people.
0: And that's exactly what Ken had to talk about as well. And and he's written a number of books on it, of course. I don't know, have you had a chance to read the latest book, Searching for Franklin? I
2: haven't read it yet, but I will read
0: it. You? Oh, yes. Yeah. I won't give away the ending for you. So don't listen to the first segment of the podcast.
2: Yeah, okay. <laughs> I won't. There was a National Geographic cover story about this guy from the States went through in a sailboat. This is just recently. There's a documentary on National Geographic or and Disney. They went with a local from Joe Haven to try and find the Franklin tomb itself. It's been so elusive. They feel like that would unlock just about everything. This guy felt that he saw it flying his small plane. And then so they went on quads to the north of King William Island. It just continues to fascinate for me. And this gets represented on those trips. There's the whole Inuit perspective on this, that they tried to help. These people were ill-prepared, and with that British exploratory arrogance that was there, we'd go in our wool peacoats and and survive. And then also, in terms of finding the wrecks of the Erebus and terror, my understanding is some of the Inuit in the know, they knew where they were all along. And that was a voice that, sadly, over the course of history, has just not been given the respect that it should have.
0: When we chatted on a previous podcast, we talked about the fact that your middle name is Franklin and that you had a great uncle, a sailor that died at sea, which likely influenced your parents' decision to give you that middle name.
2: Well, maybe. I mean, that was a great uncle Barnard, I think. And that's where I got my first name and my three sisters were named after ships. So yeah, he was all about that. And one of the reasons I drive Zodiac, I remember the first trip I went on, just went in as a musician and very quickly I realized, okay, I'm a staff member. And I think I was driving Zodiac by the end of that trip because I've just always loved being on the water. The whole Franklin thing, I wish my dad was still around because I think Franklin was also a family name, but I wonder if it was partly to do with Franklin the Explorer. It's pretty powerful when I get to Beachy Island. And I have had the good fortune of going there probably six times. This is a place where it is extremely difficult to get to. I've had the good fortune to be there. And it's a very moving place. It really hits you, just the desolation and the beauty of the place. But my God, how hard it would be to survive there.
0: Ken mentioned that the passengers can offload at a place like Beachy Island, where Franklin spent, I think it was the winter of 1845, and learn some of the history and the story and see uh, some wooden plaques that mark the graves of three of the men. So you painted a good picture. There's three wooden plaques perhaps a stone cairn, and nothing?
2: There's actually four, because there was the three from the ship, and then another person was buried thereafter. And of course, those graves were exhumed, was it in the 70s, I think, to see if they could get any clues into how people died. But they did that very carefully and then put the remains back.
0: What goes through your mind when you look around at the vastness and emptiness of the area? Yeah, that's a really good question. I am struck, again, by the beauty of it sometimes
2: i'm helping move passengers around i'm most often a polar bear guard when we're at beachy island so we're first ashore and when we're loading our firearms and we get a moment to be there by ourselves before the passengers get there see that hill way up there that slope right before it gets really steep go there and look over so you can keep an eye on the bay on the far side and so a part of me is doing my job but i'm there in that case, as a bear guard, in solitude, and you get the moments to contemplate what happened here, how hard it would have been. It's just very moving and stirring. So what do you do when you see the polar bears? At all costs, they would never want to have to shoot a polar bear. So much of it is preventative. In this last year's trip, we had to call off a landing because there was a bear there. And then we were able to see that from Zodiacs. There's been other times when we've been ashore and a bear has started to come into the area. We carefully get people in Zodiacs and back to the ship, and we're the last to leave. When you're on hikes, you're always aware. I'd probably, over the course of my years, there's about three times we've had to get people offshore quickly and orderly. The good thing about the Arctic is that you can see from a long way. I remember one time at Beachy Island, I went to one place, and there were dead seals on the ice flows probably about a mile away, and you knew that There was a polar bear in the area, so everybody's just watching. And then they tailor how far the people can go. But it's wonderful. The great thing about the trips is virtually every day you're getting on shore.
0: I was going to ask you about that. So even though the cruises take place during the warmer months, is weather still an issue from time to time?
2: Again, whenever you're up there, weather is always an issue. (laughs) Venture Canada are exceptional at pivoting. I also did circumnavigation of Scotland up through the Faroe Islands and Iceland, and we are trying to get ashore on a certain island that meant a lot to people. I guess this was in the the Shetlands. It was too rough. You just couldn't get people in Zodiacs. So you just have to figure out what else to do.
0: Where does the cruise for the Northwest Passage, Beachy Island, where does the cruise start and end from there?
2: There's two of them. One is Into, which starts in Kangalushawak and Greenland. And goes up the coast of Greenland and through the Northwest Passage, all the greatest hits of that, stopping to Beachy Island and various places. That trip, 17 days long, ends in Kugluktuk, formerly Copper Mine in the Western Arctic. Those passengers get a charter flight and the, the other passengers are getting off of it and they get on the ship. And then it does the opposite and ends in Greenland. But I mean, you go so far north and the, the northernmost community in, in Greenland. Greenland is absolutely spectacular. Peter, it's nice to talk about this stuff. Like, I, I've talked about my music a lot over the course of my life. <laughs> I find this whole um, part of my life really interesting. That's my nature. That's why I've, I've ranched and I do these trips because it's all about seeing the world and the adventure of it. I'm very aware that we're doing this in a bigger ship and we're doing it in really great weather conditions, by and large, sometimes not so much, but. And we're very fortunate to see it in those conditions. Talking to Ken, when you're listening to him give a presentation, uh, you know, these things you get so fascinated with just like the geological history, the cultural, the anthropological history of the area. I find that absolutely fascinating. When you're exhausted sometimes in these trips, because you work pretty hard, you go, yeah, I'm just going to go to my cabin and have a nap. All of a sudden, somebody's talking and doing a presentation. You go, and you find yourself sitting there and
0: and learning. When I was reading Ken's book, I got stuck on the fact, and I read the part three or four times, actually, about being stuck in the ice for two winters and being in tents out on the ice. Not on the ship, but rather in a tent. I could just feel the cold.
2: Yeah, I did. Those were incredibly tough people. It's like the guy that might have climbed Everest first in the late 20s. Wade Davis, fellow Bowen Islander, he wrote a book on it. They've tried to look for the remains and whether they made it. They did have oxygen, I think, their second try, but they were wearing like tweed outfits.
0: These people were so tough. It sounds like a very intimate experience, Bernie. Passengers getting to know each other. It's a a fairly long cruise, 17 days, you mentioned, and it's a fairly small group. And They're learning about Franklin and the Arctic and the Inuit.
2: It is. That's a nice part of it. You meet a lot of fascinating people. And of course, all the staff, they, I think, curate that really well. Everybody gets along really well and supports each other. That's what makes it a really great experience for the passengers.
0: Have these trips to the Arctic inspired you as a songwriter? That was
2: part of the reason I was going to do the book launch with Ken. I've written quite a few songs up there. Some of the musicians that have been there over the years, like Ian Tamblin, the great Canadian folk singer, he doesn't do it anymore, but he went on a lot of trips. And that guy was incredibly prolific. I don't know how he did it. He would would drive Zodiac. He did similar things to me. He would come back and he would go into his room and he'd write a song. That just blew me away. I was (laughs) impressed.
0: And you mentioned Margaret Atwood has been on a few of these cruises? Yes. She usually does one a year. And uh, she's an
2: avid birder. It was wonderful to get to know her a bit. She's just a brilliant mind,
0: I tell you. Do you have a Margaret Atwood story for us? (laughs) Yeah, I guess
2: I do. There's this preeminent bird guy, Mark Mallory, a friend of mine, and he's done these trips and we look similar. And so I'd be out in the Zodiac with Margaret, and her husband Graham was still alive at the time. This story happened, and she asked me, What's that bird? As I say, she, they're avid birders. And, and I go, I don't know, but I could find out. And just like, huh, just slightly disgusted response. And it happened a couple of times. And then at a certain point, I said, I- I'm sorry. I would love to know the answer to this. And I'll find out, but I'm a musician. And then we finally got it cleared up. And then it got hilarious. So <laughs> not. But we talked a lot about music after that.
0: Bernie, I understand you were on the ship. The cruise, as it sailed over top of the Erebus and the Terror at one point.
2: It was just after they were found, and nobody wanted people to know exactly. So it was a bit vague, but we knew, and I think it was at nighttime that we went over them. And some people got up just to have that moment. But I think the next year, and I couldn't go that next year, that they did stop nearby. They knew they'd just found the second one shortly before we went through that area. It was fascinating to be there.
0: Singer-songwriter Barney Bentall and Ken McGugan, author of Searching for Franklin, have been our guests on this edition of Today in BC. If you have suggestions or comments, send a voice message to podcast at blackpress.ca. You may be part of our podcast mailbag segment. You'll find Today in BC podcasts on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon, iHeart, YouTube, and Google Podcasts.